welcome to this week's episode of Making It to the Mic. I'm your host, Stephanie Pam Roberts, and my guest today is a special one. Saul Blinkoff is a Disney animator, an animation director and producer for TV shows and movies, an inspirational speaker, and a podcast host himself. And I'm so thrilled to share this interview with you. So Saul and I actually met in a room on Clubhouse, which is totally random because I hardly ever go on the app, but I happened to catch this room and I recognized his name since my daughter had just watched a movie he directed. Then I ended up listening to a bunch of episodes of his podcast, which is called Life of Awesome, and I thought I'd take a chance and message him to see if he'd be interested in being a guest on my show. Well, needless to say, he said yes, and what a treat it was to talk with him. The episode starts with Saul talking in detail about his journey from a kid in high school who liked making movies to becoming a Disney animator and working on films like Mulan. We also talk about other jobs he's had in the industry and what it's like to be in a session with some voiceover greats. So let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Saul Blinkoff. Hello, Saul, and welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Great, Stephanie. I'm doing great. And thank you so much for having me to this incredible podcast. So happy to be here. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. It is truly an honor to have someone of your caliber here. So I'd love to start by asking you to tell us about your journey. How did you make it to where you are behind the mic as a director, a producer, and, and all of the other hats that you wear? Now that question could be a four-hour, maybe a four-year podcast. Let me see if I can do it rather quickly for your audience. Well, look, I grew up in the East Coast, and I didn't know any Hollywood people. I didn't even know that you could make a career doing anything in entertainment. You know, People I knew were doctors and lawyers and business people. When people are surrounded by people that have certain careers, they think those are the choices that they get to make. And I'm sure some of you listening right now are hearing this and going, oh, yeah, yeah, I have a sibling that's going into law or a sibling that's going into business, and I'm the crazy one that thinks they can do voices of animated characters. Or, you know, there's always like one in a family. So I was that one, that crazy creative one. And I remember I was 11 years old, Stephanie, and I went and saw the movie E.T. That's what did it for me. I remember looking up at the screen. And I tap my mom at the end of the movie. I'm like, mom, that's what I want to do someday. My mom's like, what? You want to leave planet Earth in a spaceship? You want to be an alien? <laughs> like, I know, right? I'm like, no, mom, I want to make movies. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what the jobs were and all that. So I, I go to the library and I got books on, uh, on E.T. You know, the, I found there was like a making of book. And I found out that Steven Spielberg, the director on weekends would make movies with his friends and people in the neighborhood. I got a video camera. I got my sister, my brother, who's a year older. And every weekend I would make movies, murder movies, monster movies. And I was going to be a director. That's what I wanted to do. I, I even got a director's chair for my like, 12th birthday. And that was going to be it. And then I'm in high school and somebody comes up to me in high school one day and they're like, well, what are you going to do when you get out of high school? I said, well, I want to be a filmmaker. They're like, no, you don't. I'm like, yeah, I do. They go, no, you don't. Because if you want to be a filmmaker, you're going to have to move out to Hollywood. And Hollywood's filled with weirdos. You don't want to end up a weirdo, do you? And I'm telling you, Stephanie, right then and there, I gave up on my dream of wanting to be a filmmaker. Hmm. And uh, you know, it's amazing in life how so many times people can say things to us and change the trajectory of our lives. People who maybe make us doubt ourselves or people the opposite who can make us believe in ourselves and uplift us. Well, at that point in my life, I was so uh, impressionable. I gave up on that dream. My parents said, so what are you going to do? I'm like, well, I'll go back to being an artist. I mean, that was the thing I always did. I always drew. I drew constantly. Then I go to the movies again. And I see another movie that changes my life. I see the movie, The Little Mermaid. My favorite. Yeah, right? Isn't that an incredible movie? Oh my gosh. It's my childhood favorite. It's still my favorite. And you know, people remember that movie, I think above all others. And you have to remember at that time, the Walt Disney Studios, Walt Disney Animation was in huge, huge trouble. 
right before that movie, Disney Animation was going to close down. Disney was making movies that were dark. So Little Mermaid comes out. And first of all, it changes so many things because, first of all, it embraces the Broadway musical structure, especially with Alan Menken writing the music, Howard Ashman, his partner, and bringing a Broadway star. Jody Benson was starring in a show with Howard Ashman at the time. And he's the one that brought her over. She never did animation before. Actually, I have a podcast called Life of Awesome. And I just interviewed Jody Benson just a couple weeks ago. So if those listeners want to hear her story, you got to go check it out. Life of Awesome. Her interview is amazing. It's so good. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. I was, uh, I cried. <laughs> right? Especially when she sings. Amazing. So I see that movie and I'm watching this animation and there's actually one moment in that movie I'll never forget. It's when Ariel is singing Part of Your World and she sings about, she's like, what's a fire and why does it, what's the word burn? And she takes her hands, puts them across her chest, says the word burn, closes her eyes with her hands pressed against her chest with like this, the fire inside her. And that's really a testament, not just to Ariel's voice, to Jody Benson, but to Glenn Keane's animation. Glenn Keane is the, one of the greatest Disney animators who ever lived. He animated and designed Aladdin and Tarzan and the Beast and Belle mm. and Ariel. I mean, he's amazing. He puts such heart and emotion into his work. And when she says burn, then you really see this isn't just about a teenager that wants to go walk around on the land and go have a day. This is a person that wants to find out who she is. She wants to live life. And I remember watching the screen and feeling that I wasn't watching a movie about a mermaid. I was watching a movie about me. You know, we all have to relate to the characters in these stories if we're going to be moved by them and engaged by them. And uh, so that was it. Once I saw that movie, stuff, and I'm like, okay, that's it. I want to go into animation because animation combines my two passions, my love of drawing, my love of filmmaking, put them together animation. And plus, I found out they had a Disney studio in Orlando, Florida. I don't have to go out to LA to become a weirdo. So, so there I was, a junior in high school, and I had my dream. I knew what I wanted to do. I had clarity. I wanted to become a Disney animator. I just had one problem. I, I had no idea how to do it. You know, today, you want to become anything. Just type in Google that job, and you'll find out how to do it. Back then, there was no such thing as the internet. Yes, that's right. I'm that old. <laughs> There was no internet. And uh, so my mom took me on a trip to Disney World. It was actually very embarrassing. I remember we're getting on the uh, It's a Small World boat ride. And we're getting on the boat. And the lady there is like, I haven't in your party. We're like two. We're stepping on the boat. My mom's like, by the way, my son wants to be a Disney animator. Can you help him? The lady's like, ma'am, this is a boat ride. You know, <laughs> we don't hire animators. So she finally says, look, if you want your son to work at Disney, you got to take him to the Disney casting building. I open up those doors. I step in. And I'm in this atrium with gold statuettes of like Dumbo, Pinocchio, Mickey Mouse, like amazing. Even the air was like like pixie dust in the air. It had a smell. Like Disney office built, Disney everything has a smell. I love it. So finally, this woman says to me, it's time for my interview. And she says, Saul, well, um, what are you doing here? I'm like, well, I'm here because I want to become a Disney animator. And by the way, just walking into that office building, walking up this ramp where there was a painting of Peter Pan on the ceiling. And a painting of Walt Disney on the side. I remember I was I was in awe. I was just in like wonderment. You know, I was like, wow. So just in that being in that environment and seeing the whimsy and the magic and the imagination, the way that that office building was created was incredible. And finally, I'm sitting there. She goes, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "Well, I'd like to be a Disney animator." She goes, "Well, we don't hire those here." I said, "Well, well, who do you hire?" She goes, "Well, we hire people that you know work in the parks, people that work the rides, that make the rides go up and down, or that sell merchandising." I'm like, "Oh, I see. That wasn't really my dream." She goes, well, hold on a second. 
She walks out and comes back in two minutes later and hands me a piece of paper. That piece of paper became the most valuable piece of paper I ever held in my hands. That was a, a list of eight schools, eight art schools that Disney recruits their artists from. She says, if you want to be a Disney animator, you need to go to one of these schools. Wow. That was so generous of her. Wasn't that? And I'm telling you, that was a moment I won't ever forget because that was the moment where I had the recipe for how to achieve what I want. You know, it's one thing to have clarity that you want to accomplish something. It's another thing to find out how. Well, that was the recipe, if you will, for how to get my dream of becoming a Disney animator. So my mom took me to a list of each of these eight schools to see which would be a good fit. Ultimately, I went to a school in Ohio called the Columbus College of Art and Design, which was one of the best design schools in the world at that time. And again, one of those schools that Disney recruits from. You got to remember, this is like before Pixar, before DreamWorks, everybody who wanted a job at animation, it was Disney. They were the top. Little Mermaid had come out. They were developing Beauty and the Beast at the time. And there was like this energy in art schools around the world. I remember the first week in school, I'm walking around and I go into this one guy's room and this guy has like... Mickey Mouse, everything. He's got a Mickey Mouse lunchbox, Mickey Mouse slippers, Mickey Mouse bedspread. He's got um, Mickey Mouse clocks. It was every movie poster on the wall for every Disney. It was literally Disney World in a room. And uh, the guy wasn't in the room at the time. I'm like snooping around because I'm like, wow, cool Disney room. And I see he's got sketchbooks filled with drawings of Mickey Mouse. And I had never drawn Mickey Mouse before in my life. I had been just drawing from life, like trees and bowls of fruit and hands, you know? So I see his sketchbook and I'm like intimidated and uh, I turn to leave the room and I bump into the guy whose room it is. Uh-oh, I'm busted. So I look at him and I go, hey man, I'm, I'm sorry. He looks at me and goes, huh, how are you doing? <laughs> I, I said, I'm good. What's your name? He says, my name's Jason, but people call me Mickey Mouse Jason. I'm like, they call you what? He goes, Mickey Mouse. I'm like, I heard you. You have a Disney nickname? He's like, what? You don't? I'm like, no, I don't. I go back to my dorm room. I get on the phone with my mom. I'm like, mom, if I'm going to fit in in art school, you better send me like Disney slippers. Like I was surrounded by people, everyone that wanted to work at Disney. And then this is the part that's crazy, Stephanie. A week later, a representative from the Walt Disney Company comes to our school, stands on a stage, and he looks out to us. There's 750 students in that auditorium. He looks out to us and he says, how many of you want to be Disney animators someday? Almost every single hand went up. He looked out to us and he said, just so you know, out of the 700 of you or 750, however many you have your hands up, maybe, just maybe four of you will ever work there. Wow. That's how competitive it is. And when he said that, I thought one thing, I wonder who the other three are going to be. Because, you know, Stephanie, in life, you either believe in yourself that you can accomplish something or you don't. You know, so often I get calls from people that want to make it in voiceover. One of the things I tell them is it's incredibly competitive. There's thousands and thousands of people that want to make it in voiceover. That's just LA. I get calls from people all over the world that want to make it in voiceover. You know what? Just because something may not seem probable doesn't mean it's not possible. And the only thing that the the competition should do. It should never scare us. It should motivate us to work harder, to work smarter, to do what we can to grow. And here's the thing that's so important that your listeners have to get. We're never in competition with anyone in life but ourselves. If you think about the greatest voiceover artists out there, you know, Jim Cummings, 
He's another one I had on my podcast. He does the voice for Tigger and Winnie the Pooh and like a billion other. He does like Pete from Mickey Mouse. Remember oh, Mickey, that guy. He does that low voice. He's incredible. And he does uh, Winnie the Pooh. Oh, I think I'll have a smacker of honey. I like I like to do the voices too. And Tigger, <laughs> how you doing, little boy? Uh, he does all those voices. And he's incredible. But you know what? The world doesn't need another Jim Cummings. The world needs each of you who are listening to find your unique voice. Because if we focus in life on what makes us unique, then there is no competition. Because only we can accomplish our unique purpose. You know what? That inspired me when I saw that room. And I was, I was motivated. But it's so important for everyone listening that whenever you have that goal, you need to find out how to accomplish. That's really an equation. You have to look at it that way. See, there I was first. Saul plus what will equal dream of becoming a Disney animator? Saul plus go to one of these art schools. Boom, that's step one. Step two, now what? Saul plus I need a portfolio of figure drawing and anatomy to get that Disney internship. It was all about the internship. And I tried to get in my sophomore year and got rejected. And then I tried again my junior year. Uh, along with my best friend, Andy. Andy was this incredible artist. Oh my gosh. He was, even as a freshman, he was one of the best artists in the school. And he became my best friend. This was a very sincere, passionate, hardworking guy. And I just want you to know, and your listeners, that just me being friends with the guy like this made me a better artist. Because who we choose to be friends with actually affects who we become. You know, Think about who's in your circle right now. You have those friends that uplift you and the values and the that our friends live really affects us. Remember, Andy and I would draw all the time, constantly working and striving to be great. I'll tell you a quick story. One time we went to the Columbus Zoo and it was a bitter cold day. Now, why are we going to the zoo? Because we got to learn how to draw animals. You know, when you guys watch a movie like The Lion King, you know, Disney animators just don't look at a piece of paper and know how to draw every animal and all the anatomy. You got to study it. And we get to the zoo that day, freezing cold. It's got to be like, you know, 15 to 20 students. And we all go into this Wendy's cafe because it's freezing, right? When we get there, we're going to like warm up. We get hot chocolates or coffee, tea, whatever. And after about five minutes, Andy and I were warmed up. We go out there and we drew elephants for like an hour. And I'll never forget that day because there was an elephant literally walking back and forth doing the same motion the entire hour, which as animators is just great to see a motion repeated. You get to see the anatomy repeated constantly. It was incredible. We did hundreds of drawings of each of those poses. Afterwards, we get back into the bus. Andy and I are showing each other our drawings. And then we look at the other students we're like, hey, what did you guys draw? We didn't see you over with the elephants. Did you guys draw the monkeys? What did you draw? Not one other student ever left the Wendy's. I remember saying to this one guy, I'm like, how could you not have gone out there? Like you had real animals to draw. He goes, I couldn't go out. I'm like, why? What happened? He goes, it's too cold. And I wanted to say to him, but wait a minute. I thought you said your dream was to be a Disney animator. You know, so often in life, people have a dream. They want to accomplish something. But when it gets a little bit difficult, they're out. You know what he was really saying? I want that dream unless it gets too painful. Was it cold for me and Andy drawing elephants? Yeah, sure it was. But when Disney says draw elephants, if you want your dream, you will brave any wins in order to accomplish that dream. That's what separates greatness from good. So Andy and I get our portfolios together. We send them into Disney and we wait. And a month goes by. And I remember I was, uh, I was home in New York. It was like Christmas break. And I get a call and it's Andy. I was like, hey, man, what's up? He's like, blink off. You're not going to believe this. I'm like, what am I not going to believe? He goes, I did it. 
I said, you did what? He goes, I just got a call from Disney. I got the internship. I'm like, what? I was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Congratulations. He's like, but they didn't call you yet? I'm like, no, but they could be trying to call me right now. I got to hang up. We didn't have call waiting back then, right? So I hang up the phone with him. I'm like pacing in my dining room back and forth. My mom comes in at that moment. She's like, honey, what's up? My mom, Andy got into Disney. She's pacing back us or waiting for the the call. And the phone doesn't ring. And I can't stand it. You know what I did? I picked up the phone and I called the, uh, the head of Disney myself. Who does that? Well, I did. Because when there's something you want in your life, you will do anything to get it. Mm. And so I called up the head of Disney and I'm like, excuse me, my name is Saul. I want to find out about the internship. He's like, oh, Saul, how, I got your name on a list here. I'm like, really? Yeah. He goes, yeah, you didn't make it. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, I'm sorry. And I hung up the phone. And uh, that was one of the most bitter, sweet moments of my life. Hmm. And uh, you know, I remember going back to school, and I'm walking the schools, and people are coming up to me like, "Blink off! What are you doing here? I thought you got into Disney. Oh, you didn't make it. Oh, like where's Andy? Oh, he got in. You didn't. Oh, I became known as the guy that was friends with the guy that got into Disney, and I felt like a loser. And then I came up with the most brilliant way of taking that feeling of being a loser away. If you ever in life have a moment where you feel like a loser or a failure and you want to take that failure away, that feeling away, do what I do. The feeling goes away in a second. You know what I did? I gave up on the entire dream because reality set in. Reality was Andy was an awesome artist and I'm just average. And then a week later, a buddy calls me up and says, Saul, I got tickets to go see a movie. You want to go? I'm like, nah. He's like, but they're free. I'm like, okay, I'll go. So I go to the movies and I see the third movie that changes my life, Rudy, the true story about a football player, a kid in college who dreamed to play football at Notre Dame. That was his dream. And he wasn't athletic enough to play. He wasn't smart enough to get into the school. And he had this dream. He wanted to run out of that tunnel just one moment in his life, play football at Notre Dame. If you were friends with Rudy Rudiger, and he told you his dream, my dream is to play football in Notre Dame. You know what you would have told him as his friend? You would have been like, dude, I love you. Get a new dream. Not going to happen. And you know what Rudy said? Oh, yeah? Well, we'll just see about that. And he tries to get in. And you know what happens? Rejected. And he tries a second time. Rejected. But third time? Rejected. But fourth time, he gets into Notre Dame. And tears are streaming down my face. Because I'm thinking one thing, if an unathletic guy could get into Notre Dame with an insane amount of hard work, then an untalented artist like me could get into Disney with an insane amount of hard work. And I was inspired. So after I didn't get into Disney, I see that movie, that recharges me. And then the next day, I called up Disney, got the same guy on the phone. And I said, let me ask you a question. I said, how close was I to getting in? I'm just curious. He said, Saul, we picked 17 from over 3,800 portfolios around the world, and you made it to number 20. I had missed it by only three. Hmm. Do you know how many times in life we could all be so close to achieving what we want, but we feel we're miles away, and all we needed to do was push a little bit more? And maybe we never knew. Yeah, we never knew, right? Like Most people, when you get rejected, you're like, oh, that's it. But go find out uh, how close you are. And even more important than that, the next question I asked him was, why? Why didn't I get in? You know, there's going to be times where we're going to fail. There's going to, you're going to have jobs you're going to go out for. If you can find out why you didn't get what you want, then that's the answer key to growing. And if you find out where your weakness is, you should feel a responsibility to turn that weakness into your strength. And then he said to me, he's like, look, if you want to get into Disney, you need to work more on dynamic 
perspective in your drawing. Instead of drawing the model or the animal or whatever you're drawing from where your eye level is, why don't you stand up on a stool and look down at something or go low to the floor and look up? Give us a dynamic perspective. Boom. That was the answer key. Remember, the answer key is always an equation. What can I do to add so I can grow? So I go to figure drawing class the next day. And I set up this giant box. There was a huge uh, box that the art prof- the professor used to use for still lifes. So I stood on this box. It was like six feet up in the air. And then I stood, I put it in the middle of the room and I'm looking down at this woman, this uh, nude model. And she's looking up at me like I'm crazy. My head is like 12 feet up in the air. And I'm looking down drawing her. And I still remember some of the other kids in the back of the room. I could hear them whisper like, hey, look at the dork standing up on the box. Like, did I care what they thought? No, because the head of Disney told me what I needed to put into my portfolio. So I got my portfolio together, and uh, they had a Disney guy, actually that same guy who was on the stage that day. He came to our school that year because Beauty and the Beast had just been nominated for Best Picture Oscar. It lost to Silence of the Lambs that year, (laughs) a very different movie. And um, it was nominated. And this guy, he came to our school to look at portfolios because they were being very, uh, very particular about portfolios they were accepting. He looks at my work. He likes my portfolio, and uh, he sends it into Florida. And uh, to the, for, the, for the next review, and uh, a couple weeks later, I get a call, and it's Andy on the phone. I was like, hey, man, what's up? He's like, Blinkoff, you're not going to believe this. I'm like, what am I not going to believe? He's like, they built a brand new wing on the studio for the next interns. I'm like, wow. He's like, you deserve to be there. I'm like, thanks. He goes, but there's one more thing. I'm like, what? He goes, they put up a list of the next interns. I'm like, yeah. And he goes, you're on the list. What? Like, what? <laughs> yeah, he's like, you did it, man. I'm like, thank you. He's like, what are you thanking me for? You did it. And a couple weeks later, I was on a plane to the happiest place on earth. And I remember when I get there, there's a guy at the airport with a sign with my name on it. You know, you've seen that, like people, right? But this sign had a picture of Mickey Mouse pointing to my name. I'm like, wow, so cool. And I'm in Disney World. And they take me right from, right from the airport, right to the Disney Animation Studios, And I walk under a sign, this big metal sign that says artist's entrance. I get goosebumps right now telling you the story. I will never forget that feeling. And then I get into this building and I walk around to this one room and there's like 15 huge, wooden, beautiful animation desks. And on each of these desks is a name tag, a name plate. And one of them is mine, Saul Blinkoff. And I'll never forget that moment. And I want all your listeners to hear something. Don't think today you heard a story about a guy who was a really great artist that achieved his dream. You heard the story from a guy who was the worst artist in his school, but who never gave up. Yeah, I gave up for a moment, but then I was fired up and I decided never to give up again after I saw that movie. And if I could accomplish what I did, there's nothing stopping you from accomplishing your dream. Don't wake up any day and think that, oh, I don't have the voiceover career I want because they haven't hired me yet. No, it means there's something else that you could be doing to promote yourself, to work on your craft, to work on your abilities, and to make connections that you can finally show people what you really have inside you. And then on the internship, I was surrounded by this incredible artist, much better than me. I had to work a lot harder. I started working on the film uh, Pocahontas was the first movie I worked on. Then I worked on The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And then Mulan, which was just incredible experience because that movie we, we worked uh, on for three and a half years in Florida. Wow. See, Florida, Disney had a studio in Florida and one in LA. Mulan was the first movie that we made entirely in Florida. And that was three and a half years of my life. I got to animate on the character Shang. And uh, that was just incredible. And then uh, Tarzan, 
and then uh, so on and so on. And then, you know, I became a director. Uh, I actually went to MTV in New York, Manhattan, uh, where they offered me my first directing job and ultimately returned to Disney as a director, directing Winnie the Pooh, Springtime with Rue was the first movie I directed, and then did a couple Winnie the Pooh movies, uh, Kronk's New Groove, uh, got into television, worked on the show, uh, directed the show Doc McStuffins. You remember that show? And then uh, have worked on lots of really – I just love preschool television. That's kind of the, the place I, I, I hang now. And um, directed Llama Llama for Netflix, uh, Barbie Dreamhouse Adventures. And today I'm a supervising producer on the show Madagascar, A Little Wild. It's on Hulu and Peacock, and it's a show that's just fantastic. Um, it's a musical, incredible voice talent, incredible animators. I work with a, a really wonderful team. Uh, and, you know, th that's the short version of my life. Thank you for sharing all of that. I think there are so many amazing lessons in there, you know, like you said, not giving up and, and just pushing yourself. And, um, you know, you have to remember who you are and, and how you fit in and what you bring to the table. I would love to ask you, what is your process when you start directing something? So, you know, you get hired to direct, you know, let's say that uh, the Madagascar project. What kind of prep work do you do before you even get into the production, before the voice actors are in the booth with you? Well, it's a great question. I mean, prep work is really important. Anything that's important in life that we want to accomplish, we need to do prep work. Wrap our heads around what it is I'm about to embark on. Get that clarity so that we can better motivate ourselves and prepare for those unexpected challenges that might happen. So when I direct a project, the first thing that I do is I have to make sure I'm really, really clear on who these characters are. If you look at uh, you know, great Disney movies, look, Jungle Book is, people love that movie. So Jungle Book is just incredible. And for those voiceover people, you got some great voice talent in that movie. You got Phil Harris, who did Baloo. Yeah, look at that kid. You know, he just has great voice. And you also have uh, Louis Prima, King Louis. You remember he sings uh, Want to Be Like You? I want to be like you. That song. That's one of my daughter's favorites. Yeah, right? And that's Louis Prima. Like, he was one of the biggest jazz singers at the time. Incredible. And we love that movie. But the truth is about that movie, the story is not so strong. No one's watching that movie going, I wonder if he's going to end up in the man village or not. You don't think about that. You know what you love? You love the characters. You love the relationship between this boy and this bear. And, and so often when we're doing stories, especially I'm talking to voiceover people, it's so important to get a real understanding as deep as you can of who these characters are and who they're not. By the way, Winnie the Pooh was the first thing I ever directed. And I did a lot of research on that movie. And I remember reading about A.A. A. Milne, who wrote the characters of Winnie the Pooh. And there's a beautiful story told of how he gave his son, whose name was Christopher Robin, by the way. That was his son's name. Mm. And he gave his son this little bear, this little stuffed animal. And his son called it Pooh. And his son used to play with him. And his son used to do the voice for the personality of this bear. Like kids, you know, personify themselves in their characters and their toys. And then he gave him another toy, a tiger. And the kid named it Tigger because he couldn't pronounce tiger. This is true. Like you can't make this stuff up. And he would see how his son would do all these different characterizations. Like this character is exuberant, Tigger. And this character is like rabbit, you know? And he would be like very fastidious and no, 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 Tigger, do it like this. Or he would do the Eeyore. Thanks for noticing me, you know? Or Piglet. <laughs> oh, did it hear? And he would see, and this is the magic of what A.A. Mill noticed, that each one of those characters in the Winnie the Pooh world represent another facet 
to what every child feels. You see, there's moments where every person, we all have those personifications of those different facets. That's what makes the characters in the Winnie the Pooh world so wonderful is when they work as an ensemble. So the prep work that I do as a filmmaker, before I'm talking about camera and art direction and character design and color and music and all those things, the most important thing is who are the characters? Because story really reveals character. So for anyone listening, as you're preparing for projects that you work on, you want to know the inflections of the lines, but you want to go as deep as you can to understanding who these characters are and ultimately asking the question of, what is it that this character wants? Because you don't know who someone is if you don't know what it is that they want. Look at Disney movies for a moment. You know, The Little Mermaid sings about it. I want to be where the people are. Alan Macon used to say, in act one, we have to write the I want song. Mm -hmm. Because that's when you know who a character is. Belle sings about it. She sings, I want more than this provincial life. She tells you what she wants. That's what that moment is about. You know, Aladdin, you know, I just want to live in a palace. He doesn't want to be poor anymore. Lion King, I just can't wait to be king. You will always find in act one, we find out who our main characters are because we find out what they want. Ultimately, when we find out what a main character wants, we see that they're really living the life that's just like us. We want the same things. You know, Lion King, Simba, he just wants to be king. Why? Because he wants to do what he wants. Right. He wants freedom. And ultimately, he learns, you know what? Life's not just about getting what I want, but it's about taking responsibility. That's what greatness really is. So make sure people listening, as you prep for your jobs, whatever they are, you really figure out who those characters are and go as deep as you can. And that's how I prepare for any project that I direct. And tell us what it's like to be in the booth with those heavy hitters like Jim Cummings. I feel like, is there much work to be done on your part or do you just kind of let it happen and then tweak from there? Yeah, these are great questions. So, you know, it's tough because me and my uh, co-director, Elliot, um, we used to direct a lot of movies together. He's at Disney now. Um, he just finished working on Elena of Avalor, which is a great show. And uh, we used to do all the temp scratch voices in our animatics uh, before we brought in the actors. So we would do all the voices. And we would get used to how our own voices sounded and the inflections that we wanted. So I remember when uh, Peter Colhane, I think I'm mispronouncing his last name, he came in, he did the voice for Eeyore. And I remember Elliot and I loved Eeyore from like the 50s and 60s from the Winnie the Pooh featurettes. And we loved how he had that certain cadence, thanks for noticing me. But his cadence was always, bo, 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 bo. that was the rhythm. And I remember he comes in, this actor, and imagine you're an actor and you're doing the voice for Eeyore, and you're a broad actor, but all they want is that one cadence over and over again. Well, he didn't like doing that. He wanted to give Eeyore more. He was like, you know, well, thanks for noticing me. We're like, no, that's not what we want. Thanks for noticing me. We just wanted that cadence, right? But he comes in and he's done a lot. And he's been doing the character voice of Eeyore much longer than we were directing Winnie the Pooh. This is our first Winnie the Pooh project. And, you know, there's something, as a lot of you listening know, called line reads, you know, when a director, producer, writer does the line for the actor. But you don't do that. You can't go to the actor and go, well, here's how I want you to do it. Thanks for noticing me. Then the actor gets offended because they're like, well, why are you telling me exactly how you want it? Why don't you just do it yourself then? Mm -hmm. 
like, like you're not leaving a space for me to make the character my own. So there's all these techniques that we directors do to manipulate our voice actors. Now you guys are getting the real deal. So this is something that we used to do is instead of coming out and doing the lines like we want, we will respectfully uh, do a different line in that voice. But I'll go like this. I'll be like, well, Peter, could you try something where he's really talking about how he's sad? I'll say a different line in the direction, but that way he can hear the cadence that I want, right? He quickly caught on what we were doing and he gave us what we wanted, but he wasn't so happy about it. But let's talk about Jim Cummings for a moment. Like I said earlier, he does the voice for Winnie the Pooh and Tigger. Jim Cummings, when he came in, first of all, I remember like Elliot and I, we love the old featurettes for Winnie the Pooh. And the voice of Winnie the Pooh, the original voice is Sterling Holloway. He did Ka, the, the snake in Jungle Book. He did Winnie the Pooh. Um, he did, he did uh, Cheshire Cat. Like this guy did many more, many more characters. So many times we're watching a movie, my kids are like, Dad, that's Winnie the Pooh voice, isn't it? Like, yeah, Sterling Holloway. So Jim Cummings comes in and we hear his voice and we're like, uh, it doesn't really sound like Sterling Holloway so well. First of all, a week later, we fell so in love with Jim Cummings Winnie the Pooh. We liked it better than mm. Sterling Holloway because Jim Cummings just brought this warmth and depth to the character. It was unbelievable. And he's one of the smartest, most talented people I've ever worked with. But I'll tell you guys a quick Jim Cummings story. Um, I remember the script. There was a there was a moment where he was doing the voice for Tigger, and it said Tigger has to gasp. You know, so whenever there's a sound inflection you want, you just write the word in parentheses. And all we wanted Tigger to do is go, <gasps> you know, do a gasp. And and Jim Cummings instead goes gasp. That's genius. Yeah, genius. And we break down laughing. And that's how we left it in the movie. And I always use that as an example for voiceover artists to hear is always try to be a step ahead. I'm going to give you a little advice, voiceover people. Please listen to what I'm saying as a director. And I've worked with voiceover actors for 20-whatever years. Always at least first do what's on the page. You want to try something brave and innovative? We love that. I love, as a filmmaker, when voiceover actors want to try something, rewrite anything. Anytime an artist can collaborate and put their own ideas into something, it's incredible. But at least record it as written for the respect to the writer. Not even to the director, the writer. The writer has crafted each line. And I remember Jim Cummings, after he did, gasp, he said, now I'll give you one as written. And he went, (gasps) which we never used. We used the guest. But I remember he did both and he gave, it was that respect to somebody worked really hard to write these lines, do them as written, and then try something. You know, I've worked with some big, big actors. Now, Jim Cummings is a big name in the voiceover world, but in the real world, you walk into Trader Joe's and you tell them you met Jim Cummings, they'll be like, who? No one knows who Jim Cummings is. But you tell them David Spade, big actor, like, oh yeah, well, him I know. Like I've worked with some big actors and, you know, Rob Schneider, you know, from the Adam Sandler movies, Rob Schneider was one of the greatest actors I ever worked with because this guy, he had one goal. I want to make the filmmakers happy. He was constantly saying, Hey, do you like it like this, like that? Not only, not only was it okay to do line reads for him, he'd be like, you know what? We're not getting this line. Can you just do a line read for me? And I remember seeing like what he like left his ego at the door. And was like, hey, let me work with you guys. I don't care if I'm Rob Schneider and I'm a big actor and I'm making all this money. I just want to make you guys happy. And I always thought it was a wonderful quality when voiceover actors, if they're struggling with a line or even not struggling, just saying to the directors or whoever's directing them, like, hey, is that what you want? Or is there anything I could be doing? Or do you want to give me a line read? Or 
just to keep your ego at the door. Because at the end of the day, it's so important to have that great working attitude that people want to work with you. Because I've had times when, you know, you had big actors in there and it's not getting, it, it's, the line's not working and they don't want to hear direction. Hmm. They, they just want to get out of there and you're not really going to hire them again, <laughs> you know? Right. That's actually come up a few times with the, with the voice actors of how do we feel about line readings? And I sort of think if you have something in your head that's so specific and I'm just not getting it, I would rather you just tell me and then I'll do it. And then everybody's happy and we can move on instead of just like beating a dead horse and me trying a bunch of different ways when I'm just not quite understanding. That's right. Yeah. Because writing and remember, you know, voiceover, uh, you know, these directors or writers, they've been living with this script for like months, maybe a year. You know, you're coming in, maybe you got the script a week ago and you just and you went over the lines, maybe on the way over there, maybe an hour or two before. These filmmakers have been living with this for weeks. They also visualize the acting, the animation. Oh, there's going to be a hold. There's going to be a pause. I want a comedic beat here. So at least try to give them what they want. But then, like I said earlier, always add to it. It's so beautiful when characters of voiceover artists make these characters come more alive than anyone ever saw. And that's where collaboration comes in. And I love that. I love collaborating. I love ideas. You'll get a great session when everyone comes to the table just wanting to, you know, create something wonderful and fresh and new, you know? Yeah. Do you typically, I guess it's different for every project, but do you typically just work one-on-one or do you have more than one person in the room at a time, like reading off each other? Yeah. You know, I've done, I've done a lot of both. Um, there's definitely times when, when you bring actors in the room and you want them to riff off of each other. That's, there's definitely those, those times. But personally, I actually prefer not. I think I'm a minority in this. I think most filmmakers would probably tell you they like when everyone's in the room and they're riffing off each other. I'll tell you one thing. The actors always would rather be in the room with other actors doing those lines together. But for me personally, in my experience, and I really do think I might be the, I might be the minority on this one, I really enjoy having one actor at a time because sometimes if you have to work more with one actor than another one, then that one actor you're kind of going back and you're ultimately giving a line read to, they might feel embarrassed in front of the other actor. Like, why is this director giving me so much time when I want to move on, you know? And it gets a little awkward sometimes. I've been in those situations, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, uh, but I also, I, I just like working one-on-one with the actors. Uh, that's how I prefer it. But, you know, hey, I'm open to anything. <laughs> And then how do you piece it together if you're, you know, if you've got like character A by themselves doing all of their lines and character B, what's that process like to make sure that they sound like they're talking to each other? Yeah. I mean, usually I or another voice director will read in with them. So if there's a conversation, you know, one character's talk to another, like I'll definitely read it. We'll do a whole page and I'll play the other character. So they have something to you know respond to, or the voice voice actor will, uh, the voice director will. If I'm not voice directing, one of the best voice directors in the business is a guy named Charlie Adler, and I just know like when he's voice directing, because as I've gotten gotten to from from director to producer, sometimes I'm in the rooms now and I'm not voice directing anymore. I'm just kind of sitting in the back with the script, listening attentively, and I have my voice director, Charlie or whoever. Uh, doing the directing, and he'll just read beautifully with the other actors and just be able to get that rhythm. It's all about that natural rhythm, and then we just edit it later. What a crazy skill. That seems like such a, like for the the person who has to have that whole vision in their heads. Oh, yeah. And then translate it to each specific actor and then go into the editing room and put it all together. 
that seems like such a, a crazy skill. Oh, it is. Yeah. And then we'll also get what's called efforts, right? So after we get all the lines, we have a page of efforts. Like if we want grunts or gasps or laughing or like someone running or breathing, we have whatever actor just go through all those efforts. We'll say, okay, we want you running, running faster. <laughs> you know, or we want you like jumping. <clears throat> and we get all these efforts just to have them in the bank kind of a thing. Um, especially when you're working on you know television. You know, if you're working on a show, like we're working on the show Madagascar, and we have these characters, like Alex, our main character, Lion, like you're doing, you know, 50-something episodes, you're going to repeat certain things. You get a bank, a library of certain efforts and things. So if you make sure you go back to that well to get what you need, you don't have to have them record, you know, whoa, or certain words that he's going to say a lot every time. When you're working at the that highest level, DreamWorks, Disney, is there anything different about those sessions, you know, than, I mean, I guess you've been lucky to have that as your the basis of your career, but I'm curious, I wonder if that's different than, you know, some of the smaller things, or does it just feel like, you know, it's just another voiceover session, we just happen to be working for Disney at this high level? Right, yeah, great question. It's, it's all the same. The only difference from the big companies to the smaller companies is the amount of executives that are in the room. Ah. It puts a little more pressure. Yeah. You know, like at Disney, like when, especially when you're doing feature, like a movie, you have, especially it's a big star coming in, you know, when Eddie Murphy was doing Mushu, then, you know, producers would come in and executives would come in and everybody wanted to see Eddie Murphy, you know? So you'd have 10 people in the room. Uh, and then when they're sitting there, well, there's 10 people in the room not just observing. You're going to get 10 different opinions. Right. Right. But in the smaller stuff, it was, sometimes it would just be just me and the actor. You know, that's it. <laughs> you know, But as far as the craft and working creatively with that actor, well, that process is always the same. It's always just trying to be great. Like, like the Rob Schneider movie I did was a small – I don't even remember the name of that movie. How about that? But when Rob came in, like – we approached that project like it was the next Toy Story. Like he gave it everything he had. I gave it everything. I, I just can't remember the name of it. But um, yeah, the process creatively, it's the same. You just want to be great and try to do your best work. Yeah. Um, I'm so curious. I was looking at your website and I have to admit I have I don't have a great understanding of the different titles that you've had on these um different movies or TV shows. So what's the difference between like a supervising director, consulting director, voice director? <laughs> what is all these titles? Yeah, right. Um, so when I started out, you know, I wanted to be a director. That was it. And a director wears basically every hat. So you have to be working with the art director and the composer and the voice actors and the script and all those things. In television, you have what's called a supervising director. In film, it's the director. In television, it's the supervising director. Now, the supervising director's job is to make sure that all the storytelling is is on point with the, the vision of the series as a whole. And there's always on each episode, like Doc McStuffins, there's what's called the episodic director. So on Doc McStuffins, I was the episodic director. So if you take a whole season, let's say there's 50 episodes, you're going to divide those up. With one director is going to get half, the other director is going to get the other half. As a matter of fact, if you watch any series and there's like a 22-minute episode of whatever, they're actually, in preschools, often it's two 11s put together. There'll be like one show, and then it goes to a commercial break or whatever, and then there's another episode. And each of those episodes usually has its own director. And overseeing all of those is the supervising director. 
Now, my job as an episodic director on Doc McStuffins was basically the same as a supervising director, but it's just a little less responsibility. So my job is working with the storyboard artists and all those things. The only difference was I didn't work with all the voiceover talent. But then uh, the supervising director is the one that oversees all of the storytelling. So on Llama Llama, a uh, show that I was supervising director on for Netflix, I did that. And once, you, once I became a supervising director in television, then I never became, I was never a director again. It was only, I only took that higher responsibility as a supervising director. Now, when it says consulting director, that's jobs where people are like, oh, we love your work. We already have our directors in place, but can we just get you to help us create the show or to work with our directors or help us get to where we want to be because of your experience? There's a show called um, uh, The Stinky Dirty Show on Amazon. They were creating that show. And I had just been working with Amazon on a pilot for a show that never got made called The Numberlies. And uh, so they loved my work. And they're like, oh, can you help us develop this show, The Stinky Dirty Show, and help our directors find their voice? So as kind of a mentor. So I got that show going. Uh, I was at Mattel working on a Barbie project called Dreamtopia for a year. And they were creating the show Barbie Dreamhouse Adventures on Netflix, which was a big, big show and still is. And so for that one, they're like, oh, can you work on this for like a month or two and just help us get the foundation of the show, the rhythm of the show? So that's when I think I was a consulting director or consulting producer. I don't remember something like that on that show. Um, but now I'm a supervising producer. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> you know, when I went into DreamWorks, I was just looking to be a supervising director. I, I never aspired to be a producer anything because when I hear the word producer, I always thought, oh, that's the numbers and the budgets. I'm a creative. I don't want to do that. No offense to any producers listening. You know, you have to have a certain mind for math and budgets. A great line producer, that's really what it's called as a line producer, the one that does the budgets and the time. The great line producer is the one of the most important people in the entire animation process because that's the person that creates the foundation that the entire production can run. And the, the line producer I have now on my show, Madagascar, A Little Wild, is just one of the best I've ever worked with. It's because of her. Uh, Mercedes Salazar, she has the coolest last name. It's because of her that this show uh, is so great and strong because she manages all of these people and the animation studio, incredible. But I never aspired to be a producer. And when I get to DreamWorks, like, okay, we want you to be the supervising producer. I'm like, what does that mean? And they're basically like, well, you get to do whatever it is that you want to do on the show. So I get to oversee the supervising director and the directors and help them with their storytelling. And I get to oversee everything visual and the, and the story and the music and all these things, but I get to do it in a mentorship capacity. So I get to work with these directors and editors and all these things and help figure out where the music is and where I work with the art director and all of these things that I love and I get to do, but I also get to have that job in leadership and mentorship. And I think that's important for everyone listening. Whatever you're, uh, wherever you're at in your career, whatever rung of the ladder, there's always someone who's coming up behind you that could use some help and that needs help. And we grow so much as a human being when we become mentors to other people. And don't even think that you can't be a mentor to anyone. If you know a day's worth of wisdom, then you can teach someone who doesn't. Wherever you're at in your process, there's always someone who knows less. And when we spend the time to reach out to another person, not only do we grow as a human being, but it challenges us to make sure that we are learning at the same time. We learn more from our students. It's such an important thing. So yeah, that's kind of how I uh, 
uh, how I understand the capacities of what I do. Um, and I love, I love my job every day. I love that I get to creatively have my outlet and work on this great show, but I also love that I get to help create the culture that I want on the show, like the, the culture of leadership. You know, I said to every single person I hired on the show, is it cool to be at DreamWorks? Yeah, it's cool. Is it cool to be working on Madagascar? Yeah, it's cool. But more important than all that is I want to be help. I want to help facilitate a culture on our show that everyone feels appreciated and respected and that they're contributing because I've worked on things, even at Disney where I've had bosses that were terrible. I had a couple bosses throughout my journey that were mean or bullies or didn't appreciate happy people, believe it or not, even at Disney. And uh, it's uh, it was a culture that I never wanted to be a part of. I wanted to create something when I got to leadership someday where everybody felt appreciated and respected because to me, that's the most important thing. And when people feel that, they're able to do their best work and they enjoy it. Yeah. And especially, you know, you're spending so much time with these people and working so closely with them. I think that's so important. You're right, Stephanie. Yeah. You, you become like another family. Yeah. We watched, um, I think it was towards the beginning of quarantine last year, uh, my husband and I watched the Frozen 2, making a Frozen 2 documentary on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. And I was so fascinated and also very overwhelmed with just how many people it takes and how much time and effort and energy and hours and, and you know, all the little nuances and details that when you watch the movie, you don't think about. You think about like, oh, somebody drew the scene. No, not somebody. Like five people drew that scene, maybe 10 people. It's so nice to hear you say that. Yeah, because people, they, they don't know what goes into it. Let me just tell you, on our TV show, when you watch any animated anything, any animated anything, just take one minute of it and look at it and and just look at how all the different camera shots are. Look at the every, you know, I remember artists working on Tarzan that would spend two weeks, two weeks painting a background painting with the trees and the bamboo, two weeks coming to work every day for two weeks. And some of those paintings were only on the screen for three seconds. That's it. Yes. In the Frozen documentary, they show that too, like just how much time goes into Elsa, like putting out her hand. Yeah. It's incredible. And then also the audio. I mean, we work, uh, I work with an incredible Foley and, and audio uh, artist. And every footstep in the snow has to have that sound, like real footstep. And every time someone touches something, if, if a hand goes on a wooden banister, there's a sound. And if you have 50 characters running or they walk into a marketplace, you have to hear all that ambient sound of birds and things. If there's no sound in there, it's, it doesn't sound real. So you need ambience. Like our show now, we have New York City as a backdrop of our show. What does New York sound like? You need cars going by. Even if you don't see them, even if you don't see a car, you have a close-up of a character walking down the street, you better hear a car go by or it's not going to sound like New York. But how often does the car come? You know, Is it a truck? Is it a car? How fast is it going? If it's all the same car, it's not going to sound real. You need every different sound car. You also need people talking, but not too loud, but not too soft. It has to be that ambient sound. And then when you have characters walking off screen, you have to hear their footsteps actually recede. Like it's called perspective, like it's getting softer. Or how fast are they running? Are they walking on gravel or gravel and sand? And when you watch one minute of anything, no one's listening to the sound. If it wasn't there, it would sound like something was missing. So these are sometimes the you know unsung heroes of animation, people that are putting in this kind of effort and things that people don't even notice. But it's so important. 
So I'm happy that you uh, and your husband noticed. How old did you say your daughter was again? She will be four uh, in about a month. Oh, wow. So she's really just getting into all this great animation that's out there, right? What's her favorite stuff? Well, she loves Daniel Tiger. That's sort of her go-to and Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Those are the two, like if we if we say like, hey, you want to watch something? It's always one of those two. She's watched some movies. She's watched Frozen and Frozen 2, Little Mermaid and Moana she loves and um, Tangled, which is one of my favorites. Um, but recently she's, she doesn't want to watch movies anymore because she thinks there might be scary parts, even though she's already watched them. So we're, we're, we're moving through that phase of, well, I don't want to see the, I don't want to see Mother Gothel. I don't want to see, you know, the mean people, the scary parts. So let me throw you some advice. I have four kids. My oldest is 17. My youngest is nine. And, um, you know, a lot of times I hear parents, they kind of throw their kids into the animation pool a little early, like Tangled is fine, but like, you know, four-year-old. Lion King, it's a little dark because like, you know, four-year-olds, in my humble opinion, they don't need to know that mom and dad could die someday. Like they don't need to be worrying about that. They have to worry about, can I learn how to tie my shoe? They don't need to worry that, you know, my mom and dad can get run over by a willowbeast one day or a car, you know, because that's what those willowbeast scene really is reminiscent of. But sometimes I have parents tell me like, oh, I showed my kid Lion King because I love that movie growing up. And we wanted as parents, we want to show our kids the movies we love. But remember, when you saw Lion King, you probably weren't four. And and here's the thing. If you're watching The Lion King with your kid, you're like, yeah, but I'm just going to fast forward through that scene. Well, then you just gypped your kid out of this incredible experience because Rob Minkoff, the director, and Roger Allers of Lion King worked with a team for four and a half years to craft a story that at the end, when you see Simba climbing Pride Rock and you hear that music, because every moment in that story led to that and there's those emotions and feelings that we know when Simba looks into his reflection and sees Mufasa, remember who you are. That matters because we experience the grief that Simba had as a child losing his father. And if you skip over that, all you're doing is robbing your kid out of that incredible story and experience. And they won't get that emotional feeling. Yeah, they might hum along to the songs like you like, but they won't get that story. So I really advise parents all the time. Make sure that you have a conscious decision what age you're showing your kids what movies. And if there's a scene in a movie that you think you have to fast forward, that is your ticket to know that your kid's probably too young. It's not just about entertaining kids by putting on something, oh, my kid likes that. They like that. We want to educate them. We want them to see themselves. You know, you watch a show that I got to be a supervising director on called Llama Llama. There's no big villain in that. The villain is he has a, a tantrum one day. There's no character that's mean. It's some days that he has to learn how to control this or that. It's exactly what preschoolers go through. So if we want our children to grow and to learn as they're watching what we're throwing on these screens, let's make sure it's at the appropriate age for them because then they're going to get something more than entertainment. They're going to see themselves in those characters and they're going to be able to grow from the experience. And by the way, I will say, if you look at Winnie the Pooh specifically, Anyone listening with preschoolers, the Winnie the Pooh, uh, Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, made in the 60s, is one of the greatest things you can show kids. There's no villain. It's like, oh, you know, uh, Owl's house blows down and they have to go find a new house. It's like they're wonderful, wonderful stories that are just great, great for kids. So uh, I love that. Heffalump movie came out. I was working at Disney at the time and Heffalump was in production. And then they came to me and my co-director and said, we want you guys to do a, a Heffalump Halloween movie. So right after Heffalump movie came out, 
uh, I flew to London to work with this kid for two days. That's it. Because when you're working with kids, it's so important to be in the room with them because they look at your expressions. But the way that I always work with kids, remember this kid couldn't even read. He was so young. So with kids, you of course do line reads. And when I was working with this kid, <laughs> the first minute I do a line and the line was like, um, you know, but, but Pooh, can I go with you? But Lumpy has a British accent. So I go, but Pooh, can I go with you? And he imitates my voice with an American accent. And I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> so then I started going, but Pooh, can I go with you? And then he's imitating my British accent, which is not so good. Aww. Because I didn't want my British accent. I wanted his British accent because his is the real one. So when I finally realized after like, 20 minutes, like, I can't give this kid line reads. I can't do it in my English accent, and I can't do his English accent because he's going to imitate me. So my uh, engineer in the room, who was British, I said to him, I'm, I need your help. <laughs> I need you. I'm going to do the voice, and then you do the voice and let him imitate you. And thank God this guy had a great voice. Uh, and that's how we did the whole movie. So I want to wrap up with um, kind of one final question, which is how can we be the best asset to you in the booth as voice actors? I would say most importantly is please make sure you are well prepared for your role. You know, there are times when people come in and I can tell they just haven't read that script. They haven't prepared. Uh, so that's number one. Make sure you prepare and you've read that script. Number two, just have that great attitude of collaboration you know, really wanting to please the filmmakers, but also being able to take a risk. You know, I really, as a filmmaker, I really appreciate when voice actors can take a risk and try something that I haven't thought of, which is quite often usually the best way. But the only way to be able to do that is first to build that relationship with the filmmakers. And it's all about that attitude. And then um, trying things. I mean, I, I can tell you there many times I was working with Rob Schneider, David Spade, when like I got what I wanted. And rather than have that attitude of, I just want to move on, I remember Rob Schneider going, you know what, can I try something else? I'm like, yes, sure. Jim Cummings too, all the time. Can I, can I try something else? Yeah, sure. Try whatever you want. I just love that when a voiceover actor takes a risk to try something. Don't think you have to be perfect out of the gate. You know, take a risk and try something. You know, I know you said you want to wrap up, but I wanted to share one more quick idea with your listeners. And uh, it's, it's um, just kind of maybe one thought to think about is, you know, look, everyone wakes up and we all, we all want a life that's great. You know, we all want a life that's awesome. And we want, to, we want to put our love of acting and our craft of voiceover or whatever it is that you want to do in life. You want the world to see it. You want to show the world that you have this incredible gift and ability and you want to be part of it. Look, we all love movies and television. That's why we're in this business. But the advice I want to share don't wake up every day thinking, what can I do to make me happy? Don't think, what can I do every day that I can just live my passion? That's what most people go for. You see, in my humble opinion, the ultimate goal of life is not to wake up every day and think, what can I do to make me happy? It's what can I do to bring me meaning? Not to live a life of happiness, but a life of meaning. And that only comes from one thing, taking responsibility for the world. Don't look at your abilities as an actor as just something that's going to make you happy. Think of it as how can I use my abilities to serve humanity? Think of it that way. Think of it as like, I want to be great at voiceover because I want to be part of these great stories 
because I want some kid out there who's going through a difficult time to look up at the screen and see themselves in that character. And I want to I want to hopefully be a part of that process that encourages them. Wake up every day, know that you have that fire in you of that unique voice of something that you want to share with the world. Because ultimately when we see our gifts and our talents and our passions as an ability and we have that ability, we see there's a response ability. Response ability is wherever in life I have the ability to respond. That is the response ability. And when we see our gifts and our talents and acting, whatever it is that we love as a responsibility, it'll motivate us to work through the struggle, to be able to hopefully contribute our voice to the world. And I promise each one of you, your voice uniquely is needed in the world. We need you to find that voice and share it with humanity. Amazing. What a great way to end this. Saul, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. I love talking with you. Thanks so much. Honestly, I still can't believe I got to have a one-on-one conversation with Saul. He was so generous with his time, and I'm so glad he shared his incredible origin story with us. My biggest takeaways from this episode are that no matter what, if you want to achieve success in this industry, or really any industry, it's all about persevering and believing in yourself and working hard to pursue your dreams. And of course, it was fun to hear about what it's really like to be in a session with someone like Jim Cummings. If you'd like to learn more about Saul, I'm linking his podcast, website, and socials in the show notes, which you can find at my website, makingittothemike.com. And if you found this episode interesting or helpful, please share it with a friend. Or you can take a screenshot and share it on Instagram. And if you do, don't forget to tag me at Stephanie Pam Roberts VO and Saul too. Thank you so much for listening. And here's a little preview of next week's episode. Our voices are like any other muscle in our body in that it's important that you use it to maintain the skills that you want to be able to do regularly. That's next week on Making It to the Mic.